Chapter Twelve of the Range Dwellers by B. M. Bower. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I begin to realize. If I had hoped that I'd gotten over any foolishness by spending the fall and winter away from White Divide, or the sight of it, I commenced right away to find out my mistake. No sooner did the big ridge rise up from the green horizon then every scar and wrinkle and abrupt little peak fairly shouted things about Beryl King. She wasn't there. She was back in New York, and that blasted Terence Weaver was back there, too, making all kinds of love to her according to the letters of Edith. But I hadn't realized just how seriously I was taking it till I got within sight of the ridge that had sheltered her abiding place and had made all the trouble. Like a fool, I had kept telling myself that I was fair sick for the range, for range horses and range living, for the wind that always blows over the prairies, and for the cattle that feed on the hills and troop down the long coulee bottoms to drink at their favorite watering places. I thought it was the boys I wanted to see, and to gallop out with them in the soft sunrise, and lie down with them under a tent roof at night that I wanted to eat my meals sitting cross-legged in the grass, with my plate piled with all the courses at once, and my cup of coffee balanced precariously somewhere within reach. That's what I thought. When things tasted flat in old Frisco, I wasn't dead sure why, and maybe I didn't want to be sure why. When I couldn't get hold of anything that had the old tang, I laid it all to a hankering after Roundup. Even when we drove around the end of White Divide and got up on a ridge where I could see the long arm that stretched out from the east side of King's Highway, I wouldn't own up to myself that there was the cause of all my bad feelings. I think Frosty knew all along, for when I had sat with my face turned to the divide and had let my cigarette go cold while I thought and thought and remembered, he didn't say a word. But when memory came down to that last ride through the pass, and to Shylock shot down by the corral, at last a Frosty, standing tall and dark, against the first yellow streak of sunrise, while I rode on and left him afoot beside a half-dead horse, I turned my eyes and looked at his thin, thoughtful face beside me. His eyes met mine for half a minute, and he had a little twitching at the corners of his mouth. Jerk up! he said quietly. Chances are she'll come back this summer. I guess I blushed. Anyway, I didn't think of anything to say that would be either witty or squelching, and could only relight my cigarette and look the fool I felt. He'd caught me right in the solar plexus, and we both knew it, and there was nothing to say. So after a while, we commenced talking about a new bunch of horses that Dad had bought through an agent and that had to be saddle-broke that summer. And I kept my eyes away from White Divide and my mind from all it meant to me. The old ranch did look good to me, and Perry Potter actually shook hands. If you knew him as well as I do, you'd realize better what such a demonstration means, coming from a fellow like him. Why, even his lips are always shut with a drawstring, from the looks to keep any words but what are actually necessary from coming out. His eyes had the same look, kind of pulled in at the corners. No, don't ever accuse Perry Potter of being a demonstrative man, or a loquacious one. 
I had two days at the ranch, getting fitted into the life again. On the third, the roundup started, and I packed a war bag of essentials, took my last summer's chaps down off the nail in the bunkhouse where they had hung all that time as a sort of absent but not forgotten memento, one of the boys told me, and started out in full regalia, and with an enthusiasm that was real, while it lasted. If you never slept on the new grass with only a bit of canvas between you and the stars, if you have never rolled out at daylight and dressed before your eyes were fair open, and rushed with the bunch over to the mess wagon for your breakfast, if you have never saddled hurriedly a range-bred and range-broken cayuse with a hump in his back and seven devils in his eye, and gone careening across the dew-wet prairie like a tugboat in a choppy sea, if you have never, well, if you don't know what it's all like, and how it gets into the very bones of you so that the hankering never quite leaves you when you try to give it up, I'm not going to tell you. I can't. If I could, you'd know just how heady it made me feel those first few days after we started out to work the range. I was fond of telling myself those days that I'd been more scared than hurt, and that it was the range I was in love with and not Beryl King at all. She was simply a part of it, but she wasn't the whole thing, nor even a part that was going to be indispensable to my mental comfort. I was a free man once more, and so long as I had a good horse under me and a bunch of the right sort of fellows to lie down in the same tent with, I wasn't going to worry much over any girl. That, for as long as a week, and that, more than pages of description, shows you how great is the spell of the rangeland and how it grips a man. End of chapter 12 Recording by Tom Penn